The Water Values Podcast, Session 121. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resource treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGinnis. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thanks so much for joining me. We have a great show for you today. Um, uh, we have a Bluefield on Tap segment with Reese Tisdale where he'll talk about mining tailings and uh, its impact on water as well as uh, he'll address uh, the aluminum and steel tariffs and what the impact might be on uh, the water sector uh, via those, those tariffs. Uh, but the feature interview is with Scott Miller of Umbaugh. We're going to talk about municipal water rates. This is something I've wanted to talk about for a long time. It's on my original topic list uh, to do an anatomy of municipal water rates. Obviously, this this will be um, a relatively high level. We're not going to get real granular on things just because uh, that would have to be that would be too jurisdiction specific. Uh, and this is not intended to uh, you know essentially be legal advice. This is this is intended to give you a uh, uh, an idea of kind of what what costs municipal water utilities are allowed to recover in their rates we're not going to get into rate design or anything like that it's it's just going to be what costs are being recovered through municipal water rates uh, but before that uh, just as normal a couple of housekeeping items uh, first, uh, thank you to the, the couple of folks who gave us five-star ratings on iTunes. We're up to 73 ratings now, so thank you very much for those uh, those ratings. Uh, I would love it if you guys would, when you're leaving a rating, if you would also leave a review. That would be terrific to uh, to understand what you like about the podcast and uh, uh, give, a, give your insights to others as to why they ought to listen. Uh, the other thing uh, I'd ask for you, if you've been enjoying the podcast, please consider leaving that rating and review. And also, uh, please consider, consider leaving a donation. You can do that via the PayPal button on the website. It's thewatervalues.com. Just go there. Any denomination helps defray the cost of putting on the podcast. So with that, let's go on to Reese Tisdale and our Bluefield on Tap segment this week. Well, Reese, welcome back to another Bluefield on Tap segment. How you doing? I'm good. How about yourself? I'm doing good. Good to talk. Yeah, you're in the... Uh, sorry, you're in the middle of a nor'easter right now, aren't you? Nor Bomba Bomba Genesis, I think it's the <laughs> second of the year, and I think we're approaching record level high tides. I think we're just a couple inches away at this point. Oh so, my gosh! Um, I don't know. I decided to walk to work. <laughs> <laughs> so this Bluefield on Tap segment, what uh, what's on your mind for this one? Well, you know, I think, you know, we talk about a range of different things usually, but I was just in Minneapolis this past week, which was a good trip. I was speaking at the Society of Mining, Metallurgy, and Exploration, so the SME annual conference in Minneapolis, and I was talking about, uh, you know, I was just talking to people throughout the industry, what's happening in mining as a whole, because there's been an uptick, like other commodities um, whether it be on the energy side, but also in mining, you know, uh, copper and gold prices are on the uptick. And so people are pretty excited about mining these days, uh, and dollars are starting to flow back into it, uh, capital investment. But one the issue, what I was really talking about were tailings dams. 
Yeah. So sort of what, what's happening? What's what in the world is happening with tailings? Yeah. So first off, can you explain what tailings are and why they're important to water? Well, I think basically they, you know, they are the byproduct of of mining. You know, they're moving. You know, you know, you have you pull the ore out, and you're using a variety of different processes, both chemical and mechanical, to extract the the minerals such as gold or gold or copper um, and others. And basically, it is a byproduct that gets sort of basically set aside. And there's a lot of water that goes into this process, and these dams basically are set up which hold a lot of this and in many cases they can be you know they're useful they've been around for decades and decades in some cases but what we're starting to see is there are also a potential problem or a risk not only to the mining company as a whole but also just to you know surrounding communities um, it's a problem so I was working with uh, West Tech Engineering. Actually, we had presented a paper on this topic about what's happening and what some alternatives are as far as uh, – and, and why there are changes happening in, in company mining companies' analysis of, of tailing stamps. All right. So tell me a little more about, about how what, – what was the, about your presentation and kind of what you, what you uh, discovered through this research? What ends up happening is, you know, the mining sector, as I mentioned, is on there's an uptick. Um, so there's a greater focus on on the industry itself. Usually, when there's a downturn, regulators and the public as a whole sort of starts looking elsewhere for other things to worry about. But the sectors, there's an uptick, and so there's a discussion about. The, really, the question was, are regulations increasing on these uh, on these mining companies to improve the safety, security of the tailing stands? Um, because what ends up happening, they are a dam holding water and other materials, and they do collapse. And so they've wiped out entire communities, um, killing people in places like Brazil and Canada and elsewhere. Um, so I think the point is people are more focused on water because water is a big part of it. They use a lot of water. They hold a lot of water. So what to do with that? Because really it's the weight of the water that is a big problem um, with the dams. Secondly, where are regulations changing? So we're starting to see some slight changes in places like Australia, Canada, to a lesser extent in the U.S. I mean, there are EPA rollbacks and things like that. So the U.S. is not the most uh, – uh, I guess, proactive uh, regulatory environment these days. And I think lastly, there's been an uptick in serious dam failures. I mean, over the past, you know, uh, we're starting to see ever ranging from sort of uh, non-dam events to various se very serious dam failures. It, they've been steadily increasing uh, over, you know, decade over decade over the past couple of years, so there's a greater focus on them. So I guess lastly, what are the solutions? A big part of the talk was about uh, dry stacking. And basically what that is is removing the water from the tailings. And so, therefore, there's less water, there's less risk. The problem with that is for every percent of water that you take out, there's, uh, there's a related cost increase on dewatering these tailings dams, um, which is – a bit of a problem, but at the same time, it does improve the security because ideally, I think the panacea is 
it's sort of a, it's there's zero liquid. You take it down to basically the remaining, you know, uh, dust and and ore that's left behind um, with no water. That's going to be really, really expensive, and that's not going to happen. So, what can be done between where we are today and where where maybe headed? To put it in perspective, there are thousands of mines around the world. There are only 36 dams in the world that have dry stack uh, tailings in place, and so I think the industry as a whole is trying to figure things out. It's an industry that's been beaten up, I think, in the media and the press. Partly because the world is a smaller place, but also, as I said, the increase in these failures uh, has put a focus on the industry as a whole. Yeah, yeah, and and when we're talking about mining, we're also going to, you know, your your thoughts, especially uh, in light of the administration's recent announcement about steel tariffs, goes to steel prices. And I'm I'm just kind of curious about uh, what your thoughts are on uh, how the uh, the, the tariffs that have been announced, and we'll find out more uh, in, in the coming days, uh, what, what's going to be the impact on the water sector of, of the steel tariffs? Well, I think everybody sort of yet was yesterday was blown back to think, say, oh, my, you know, where did this come from? Um, <laughs> so it came out of nowhere. So there's still a lot of questions about exactly what's going to happen. Um, Look, if, if steel prices go up, I mean, there is a potential impact on the on the water sector um, where they're still being used, whether it be in plants or in networks. Um, prices could potentially rise. You know, the argument is that, you know, uh, other, other uh, companies from other countries are dumping. Um, will that be true if the tariffs do go in place? Um, there's potential financial and cost impact on infrastructure, and it seems like that's the last thing we need these days is uh, rising costs, in, in, in addition to potential inflation, which everybody is more focused on these days. So it could be a problem for municipalities as we go forward. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great point, Reese. Well, Reese, thank you so much for coming on. You have this Bluefield on Tap segment. Always great to hear your insights uh, into the water sector and uh, the related sectors. Uh, so thanks so much for coming on. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Dave, and uh, have a good weekend, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll talk soon. All right. Thanks, Reese. Take care. Uh-huh, bye. Well, as always, Reese does a great job uh, giving his uh, – blue and his and Bluefield Research's insights into the water sector, uh, this time on mining tailings as well as uh, the impact on the water sector – of uh, the aluminum and steel tariffs that are uh, we're going to find out more about this week as we're as uh, as President Trump announces that. Um, so with that, I think now it's time to turn to the anatomy of municipal water rates, and this is a this is a great interview. Scott and I have done rate cases in the past, and uh, I think this is this is uh, going to be interesting for those of you who don't live in kind of the uh, the, the regulated utility world. Uh, this will help you understand how municipal water rates are set, and what are some of the issues that go on in there. So, uh, and, and even in the unregulated side, Scott gets into that as well. But in any event, uh, here is uh, my interview with Scott Miller. So fasten your seatbelts, open the valves, and here we go. Well, Scott, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. Thanks so much for coming on and spending some of your time with us. Uh, for starters, how about telling us a little about your background and how you got interested in water? 
Sure, Will. Thanks, Dave. Thank you very much for uh, inviting me to speak. Um, for me, uh, my interest in water is, is kind of a long and winding road. I, growing up, I uh, grew up in northern Indiana, and we've got a, a lot of lakes in that area. And so my parents were uh, uh, very interested in uh, sailing at the time. We had a, a small sailboat on a lake up there. And so I spent most of my summers on the water and didn't really think much about what goes into, you know, how that water might be used or, or certainly how it was used uh, in the home or in a business. <clears throat> Fast forward um, to uh, just before graduation from uh, IU well, with a degree in accounting, and I'm thinking, I, I'm not terribly interested in doing audits and tax returns for the rest of my life, so what am I going to do? Um, and uh, fortunately, uh, was able to uh, accept a position here at Umbaugh, and 20-plus uh, years later, here I still am, and continue to be fascinated uh, by the industry and and uh, the changes that we continue to see. Yeah, so so we're here to talk rates. We've, you know, um, Umbaugh's a financial consultancy that, and you're in kind of the rate department or the representing utilities and in, in rates, financings, that kind of thing, right? That's correct. Okay, good deal. Um, well, so so. Uh, since I started this podcast, I've wanted to do kind of an anatomy of a rate case. And uh, I finally, you know, this is, we're, we're almost at year, heading into year five. Um, we're finally getting around to it. And in terms of, of the anatomy of a rate case, I think there's two distinctions, right? There's, there's how investor-owned utilities set rates and how municipals set rates. Um, and I think we're going to focus on municipals because, you know, I, I think to, to undertake both of those in one podcast would turn into a, 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 an extended version, and we don't, we're trying to avoid that and, and be efficient with our time here. But in any event, uh, in terms of the anatomy of a municipal rate case, can you kind of give us kind of a high-level perspective on, on what, uh, how a municipal you know, rate setting or a rate case works? Yeah, certainly. Um, it, it, you know, the, the rules are going to be different for every jurisdiction, uh, meaning uh, usually uh, state jurisdiction. Most uh, water rates are, are set by uh, state law. So there's likely going to be some uh, legislative authority, statutory authority that the utility is going to need to follow that in most cases is going to address uh, address whether or not the rates are uh, fair, just, and equitable, non-discriminatory, those, those types of words are, are usually going to be the background um, for that uh, rate-setting procedure. And so then it just becomes a matter of uh, knowing what the uh, statutory, statutory authority allows in, in terms of the components of the rates and uh, doing the analysis to, uh, to design a rate structure that's going to recover those components. And so those include, you know, the day-to-day -day operating uh, expenses of the utility, uh, debt service on any bonds or notes that are outstanding, along with, uh, in, in most cases for a utility deal, a, a, a debt service reserve. Uh, would also include uh, an, an allowance for uh, extensions and replacements, and then in, in many cases, uh, payments in lieu of tax as well. So those are the, the main revenue requirements that go into a municipal rate case. And the, the, the goal is just to analyze what are the amounts uh, in each of those buckets that are necessary to operate the utility uh, safely and effectively and, and uh, with a, a healthy financial uh, perspective. All right, you used the term revenue requirement in there. So could you explain what a revenue requirement is? 
Yeah, the rates and charges uh, in any utility are going to be designed um, to meet those annual revenue requirements, and it's those components that I that I talked about the the. Uh, operating expenses, the debt service reserves, the uh, uh, replacements and improvements. Um, it, it's going to be those items that are specifically uh, laid out in the statute that the rates and charges are allowed to recover uh, through that, that process. So as customers are billed, they pay their, their bills back to the utility. That revenue comes in. Um, that revenue uh, – not that it's split up on everybody on each individual bill, but as the, as that revenue is aggregated, it goes to pay for those different components of operating the utility, and those are the revenue requirements. Got it. And so, when we're, when we're looking at the revenue requirement, what period of time does it cover? Yeah, typically rates are set using a, a test year, which is uh, in most cases a, a current 12-month period uh, that can be adjusted to reflect what you anticipate operations to look like on a going-forward basis. So it's in, in most cases, at least in, here in Indiana, for example, um, most of the time it's looking at a, a current historical 12-month period and then looking to see whether or not there are any items that need to be adjusted, whether there's increases in salary expense or changes in insurance uh, or uh, um, any sorts of other employee benefit items, uh, those types of things. Looking, uh, here's what we had in this last 12 months. What do we anticipate those costs be to be going forward in the next 12 months, making those adjustments and then using that adjusted test year as the basis for setting the rates and charges. In Indiana, we've just had a, a statutory change that uh, allows for a forward-looking uh, test year. So that's been done a few times, uh, not a whole lot yet, but this would be looking forward and, and setting that test year out into the future. And so far, um, I've seen uh, most of the, just investor-owns do that, so that may be something we want to talk about in the uh, investor-owned podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I know that uh, I know the, the the commission has issued recent order, at least the Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission has just issued some recent orders uh, concerning how it, how it's going to apply that future test year statute. And again, you're right; we can we can uh, delve into that in a future podcast. But in any event, um, uh, let's let's kind of look at at each of those components you laid out, the first component you laid out was O&N, like operation and maintenance expense. Like what are the typical uh, uh, major cost drivers for utility rates in that category of O&M expense? Yeah, the major drivers, you know, first, you know, what, what comprises that is just the, the day-to-day expenses uh, that it takes to keep the lights on and keep the water flowing. So salaries, wages, uh, employee benefits, power, chemicals, all those sorts of things, billing costs, all, all those items. What we see uh, driving increases in those uh, items uh, right now are the, the increases in salaries and wages, uh, changes in um, uh, pension and benefit allowances, increases in insurance premiums, um, Purchase power, we haven't seen a huge change, at least here in Indiana yet. We still have relatively uh, cheap power costs, um, although the rest of the country may, may not be too excited by that since a lot of ours is coal generated. Chemical costs, uh, chemical costs can, can increase, but it's uh, usually what you see is um, kind of a, a general increase or an inflation in those expenses from year to year. And, and typically what we see is while inf- inflation in the economy as a whole is relatively low, we're seeing a little bit higher cost increase uh, in the uh, O&M sector for uh, water and wastewater utilities. Right, right. 
um, in, in terms of, of uh, debt service, what, you know, can you talk a little about how debt service is calculated? Because, you know, I know that utilities typically have more than one, usually have more than one uh, series of debt outstanding. So how, how do you kind of figure that out? How do you, how do you, you know, work the debt service piece of it? Yeah, for a municipal utility especially, when as far as uh, structuring debt, when we're looking at it, the the objective for us is to keep, uh, and really not just us, it's at the direction of, of our client, usually the, the mayor or the, the city or town council. Uh, you know, their, their interest is to provide the service and provide it as, at as, uh, cheap or as low a price as possible. And so the way to achieve that, uh, with the debt service component is to structure that debt to maintain a relatively stable, uh, annual principal and interest requirement. So, uh, you know, if you have just one bond or note outstanding, that, that's pretty easy. It's whatever that annual principal and interest uh, is for any given year. And you try to make that as level over the entire term of the, the bond issue as possible. Where it starts to get interesting is when you start to add on those additional bond issues that you mentioned as, you've, as you do additional projects and finance additional projects, um, layering in that debt on top of whatever else is outstanding is really where that structuring comes into play to try to minimize the impact on the rates and charges as much as possible. And so that can include deferring principal until uh, later years once some of the earlier principal is paid off, which drives up the total interest cost, but in the end keeps the uh, user rate as low as possible. Right, right. That's that's an interesting point. I've had clients that have, have uh, said – Rather than keeping the debt service payments level and, you know, wrapping new debt around existing debt so that you may defer principal payments and pay interest only for a period of time until, uh, you know, the debt service uh, levels off until some, some bonds drop off and you can, um, uh, you can levelize the debt that way. They've said, you know, like, because it's going to, we're going to pay less in the long run, we think it's more responsible for our, for our ratepayers' perspective to, um, uh, pay principal up front and get that debt paid off as soon as possible. And so they've, they've chosen not to wrap the debt and to, uh, uh, to, to really get the debt paid off as, as soon as possible, even though it results in a higher rate they're, mm-hmm. what they're trying to do is just, is just pay it down. So they keep that, you know, overall long-term interest rate or long-term uh, uh, accumulation of interest down. And, and that's, you know, that's a local choice. There, I've had some clients that uh, have wanted to do the same thing where, you know, they're, they're just very uh, uh, averse to having that debt outstanding. They don't like to pay that interest, and, and they do exactly what you just said, pay it off as quickly as possible, understanding that it's going to mean uh, a higher user rate initially, uh, but you're going to get rid of that debt uh, sooner than you otherwise would have. Right, right. And, and as we move through this, uh, debt service seems to have a, uh, a, a close relationship with the extension and replacements item that you, you mentioned. So can you talk about what extensions and replacements are, and then maybe we'll get into kind of the relationship between debt and, and extensions and replacements? Yeah, most utilities that uh, are operating uh, effectively and, and really looking out uh, 
to the uh, future and, and considering what uh, their needs are going to be into the future have developed some sort of capital improvement program where they've identified in, in this particular year I need to replace this amount of pipe and I've got to buy this new vehicle and next year I've got to do these things and so on and so forth. So uh, it, the extensions and uh, replacements allowance is really looking at that capital improvement plan and usually it's a three to five year plan um, figuring out what is the 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 average that's going to be needed in each of those years to uh, accomplish the um, objectives of that plan in terms of keeping the infrastructure uh, up to date and in, uh, um, operating effectively. So it's then building in that amount of dollars into the uh, rates and charges so that the utility can fund those improvements uh, over that time period. Right. And can you talk a little about the relationship between debt service and extensions and replacements. Yeah, so typically you're going to have debt service, uh, you know, from a borrowing, uh, usually the issuance of bonds or notes, and and that's usually done when you've got um, usually a a larger project, uh, certainly a a significant capital project where you're going to be installing uh, improvements that are going to last for uh, a a, a lengthy period of time. You know, we're talking, you know, 20, uh, 10, 20, 30, 50, even 100 years in some cases if it's pipe. And so you're going to want to spread that cost over uh, the useful life of the asset so that you have each generation of user paying for their fair share of the use of that asset. So if you've got, uh, you know, a plant expansion and and this plant expansion is going to last 40 years, you don't want all your current users to have to pay for it because users, you know, 20 years from now are, are still going to be using that plant theoretically. So you want to try to spread that cost out over the useful life of the asset. When you're looking at the extensions and replacements allowance, a lot of times those are shorter lived assets. So, you know, vehicles certainly would be on the, the very short end of that. You're, you're going to um, use a, a replace a vehicle vehicle through that extensions and replacements allowance, you're certainly not going to want to do a 20-year bond issue to buy a truck. Um, in some cases, though, you would have some longer um, longer live gas sets in there, and I've seen a lot of pipe replacement projects in, in a extensions and replacements uh, budget. But, it, again, it's trying as best as possible to match up the useful life uh, of the asset with the um, payment or, or how that, that asset's going to be paid for, whether that's through uh, a debt service uh, or through just the rates and charges. Right. And, and again, as you, you, you indicated earlier, it's a local decision uh, in a lot of cases in terms of how, how that decision is made. That's right. Yep. Yep. Uh, so, and, you know, I was interested to hear you say uh, uh, payments in lieu of taxes uh, when we're talking about municipal rates. So can you talk a little about, you know, what, what these uh, payments in lieu of taxes are, how they factor into rates, kind of that kind of thing? Yeah, so uh, municipal utilities generally are exempt entities. They don't pay uh, income tax. They don't pay property tax. Um, And so uh, here in Indiana, it's been uh, fairly common, especially over the last few years, um, to have the utility make a payment in lieu of property tax to the municipal entity. And this um, has been in place for a number of years, but but really recently uh, has become increasingly important because several years ago, our legislature adopted property tax caps, which limited the amount of money that the municipal uh, side of the house can bring in. Um, And so as a way to help with the budget on the municipal side and to also reflect that if the 
utility would have been privately owned instead of municipally owned, the city would have received property tax. Uh, these payments in lieu of uh, tax have been put in place. So it's just a way to uh, transfer, one of the few ways, at least in Indiana, to transfer money out of the utility into the uh, civil side. Yeah, yeah. And I, I know uh, it's good you qualified that, saying in Indiana. I know other guests, like, like Pat Mulroy, has really railed against um, municipalities that have authority to uh, charge rates and then turn around and just and shovel a bunch of it back to the municipality. So it, it's it really, you know, in, in jurisdictions that allow that, that's more of a a, a way to get around property taxes. Um, and so I think that I think it was uh, wise of you to point that out that that uh, in Indiana at least, you know, utilities don't have authority to to kind of. Uh, funnel funds out of the utility, except in certain limited circumstances. Yeah, uh, yeah, we have we have a closed loop system, so there's just you know less than a handful of of legal ways to get money out of the municipal utility over to the civil side, and and you need to approach that cautiously as well. You know, the the finances of the utility, the rates and charges really need to stand by themselves, and and so you, it really shouldn't be set up as a vehicle to keep property taxes low for the city as a whole and, and funnel it through the utility. That's that's you know certainly we don't see that, and I, I think that would get challenged pretty quickly uh, were that to be tried here in Indiana. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about some common issues that crop up in uh, in, in rate cases, and I and I, I guess initially we ought to distinguish between a rate case before a uh, utility regulatory commission or a public service commission or PUC, whatever jurisdiction you're in, and uh, a jurisdiction that is not, that does not regulate, you know, rates. In, in Indiana, at least, the Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission does regulate municipal water utilities, not sewer, uh, and those municipal water utilities have the ability to opt out. So let's kind of... Let, let's start on the unregulated side and say, you know, Scott, what do you see as kind of the biggest issues that, that communities are facing when they're looking at raising their rates uh, from an unregulated perspective? Well, the, the biggest issue that we see right now is just that uh, because, at least here, those decisions are made by elected officials, the, there's a a propensity to delay increases as long as possible. And so a lot of times then what you find is that you've put the increase off uh, for enough period of time that now it's a big increase and um, going through the process to get those rates uh, charged or increased here in Indiana requires uh, uh, legal notice, uh, publication of a legal notice, and then uh, introduction of an ordinance at a hearing and then a public hearing where the, the public can come into the city council and, and uh, at their meeting and, and talk about why they are not too excited about their rates going up. So, the, so it's those sorts of issues being able able to answer, you know, why you've waited so long and, and, okay, fine, you've waited long, so now we're going to get hit with this increase. Why does it need to be the amount that it's going to be? And so that's really the, the challenge is uh, it would be better uh, from a, not only a budgeting perspective from the uh, utility side, but also from the customer side if you were to do smaller, more rateable increases every year versus waiting, you know, five, ten, even longer uh, years to do a rate increase and then having a big uh, double-digit increase. So that's really the, the issue that I see the most is just, 
you know, approaching it from um, that perspective versus approaching it from a, a business perspective where uh, you, you got to pass on that cost increase when it happens, not delay it. Right. And, and I, I'm, I'm fully on board with what you said there. I thought that was a very good advice uh, because I think also if you, if you have the more regular rate increases, you kind of condition your uh, constituents to expect smaller, more manageable rate increases. Um, and the other, the other piece of that, I guess, is, is that when you have the big rate increase, people have a reason to come out and complain. When you, if you have smaller rate increases, it may not be worth it for them to, you know, trudge down to the city council chambers and complain at a, at a hearing for, you know, what, what amounts to a relatively minor rate increase. That's exactly right. I've, I've got one client that um, does a, a three-year phased-in increase, and we try to keep it at uh, an increase in the monthly bill at around a dollar, certainly less than a dollar fifty increase per month. They do that increase annually for three years. We come back in and do another study, and I'll tell you what, when we've, when we've had those increases uh, over the past two or three cycles, we haven't had anybody speak up at our public hearing. Um, they, people have been there for other reasons, but, but not for our water rates. Contrast that with uh, situations where I've uh, been, uh, I can think of one recently where we were having a, um, it was a 40-some percent increase, I think, and we had a, a room full of about 100 or so angry people. <laughs> and it was, it was not a pleasant meeting. So, you know, pick your poison, um, I guess. But, but from, for my money, it would certainly be a, a lot better to do that uh, smaller and more often. Yeah, and you said something interesting about the phase, phase, phasing in the rates or and, and essentially having tiered steps as you, as you go along. So you go through the pain once every three years. Can you talk about a little about, about how that works? Yeah, we, we like to uh, suggest to our clients that they need to at least be looking at their rates and charges every two to five years. Um, what I found uh, works well is, is the, the situation that I mentioned earlier. We, we do a, a rate study. Uh, we do a three-year phased-in increase, so we calculate what the rates need to be. Uh, we're going to have an immediate increase, and then 12 months later we'll have another increase. 12 months after that we'll have another increase, and then in that process towards the end we'll come in, do the next study, and, and start that cycle over again. So uh, it, it just it, it's a way to keep ahead of, if nothing else, just the inflation. And in their case, we've We've had a series of projects that we knew we needed to do, so it's it's moving the rates gradually uh, to where we needed to be to uh, take care of the financing for those projects as they were ready to hit, uh, and it's just a, a, a lot smoother and easier process. And, you know, I, I don't think we want to go out. We usually don't go any longer than five years in that process. Five years probably our maximum because you start, you start to get into questions of whether or not customers have actually been given or received the legal notice that they're required to receive when there's a change in rate. So we don't, we, we try to keep that on the, the short end, but it, it it's a way to, to have that process, have that uh, public discussion, get it out of the way uh, and, and move it uh, and just move on down the road. And if you time that right, you can kind of time that around the election cycle and, and, uh, it seems like everybody's happier, frankly. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, in terms of the phasing of the rates and how that how that fits in with kind of the test year and the adjustment cycle, or or, or what you're saying when you're phasing your rates in, I just want to be clear on this. So you've got you're you're still doing the test year and having an adjustment period, 
and then let's say that comes up with you need a 30% rate increase. Well, then say you say, and I'm just, you know, this wouldn't be exactly right, but you say just do 10% a year for three years. Is that what you're doing? Or are you kind of, are you kind of taking it out and, and saying, okay, well, in the future, we our capital plan says we're going to need X, Y, and Z, and that's how you're basing it. So I'm just trying to get a good sense of of what the actual basis of the 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 phase in is. Yeah, the latter version works better. Um, what I found, if if you're to the point where you have calculated that you need a 30% increase, most of the time you need that right now. Um, so so typically what we're doing when we're doing a phased-in increase is we're calculating what is the uh, operating expenses for this next 12-month period, what's our debt service, what's our need for extensions and replacements, what sort of increases needed to get the rates where we need them to fund that, then in the year following that, how do we anticipate our operating expenses going to change from year one? So usually adding in some inflation, some uh, additional salaries, those sorts of things. It's possible we've, we might have structured the debt so that the debt uh, gradually increases as well to facilitate that phase in. We've done that quite a bit. Um, so that's an easy way or an easier way to, to um, structure in those types of uh, projects when you're doing debt to to ramp that debt up in the, the early years. So it's really looking at what do we need in each of those particular years rather than starting with the answer at the end and and backfilling it. Okay. Does that make, that make sense? Yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense. I just wanted to, to, to make sure we were, we were understanding that because, um, you know, it, it's easy for, for, for us where we kind of live and breathe that um, with, with some frequency, but I just want to make sure that kind of the listener can – can can latch onto that con- those concepts. Um, so so uh, phased in rates uh, and and kind of the, how that that's one common issue. Uh, what are there any other? What are what are some other common issues that you see when you're looking at uh, at at a, you know increasing rates? What are some of the other things that come up? Drivers currently. Um um, regulatory limits certainly are uh, a big one on the on the wastewater side. Um, certainly, uh, new phosphorus limits have been a big driver over the past three or four years. Long-term control plans certainly have been a, a big driver for an even longer period of that on the on the wastewater side. But but anytime you've got a new regulatory limit um, that you have to comply with, that's likely going to result in additional cost, whether that's a, pro- a project that's needed to uh, change your treatment process or, or something like that. That's uh, a lot of times what we see uh, driving increases. Another big driver is capacity expansion. Is if you're in a growing area and and are running out of uh, capacity, the, the need to expand uh, plant or extend lines, add booster stations, all of those things are going to uh, – and for, for most utilities are, are going to result in probably some sort of financing to, to fund those improvements. Um, an issue that we've seen uh, – you hear about it uh, quite a bit in the news lately is just aging infrastructure in general. We, we've heard it uh, with the uh, administration's announcement of the infrastructure plan uh, earlier this week. Uh, here in Indiana, there's been a number of studies done over the past few years that have tried to put a number on uh, what we need to bring uh, our infrastructure uh, up to snuff and get everything um, um, 
rehabilitated and, and redone so that it will last for the next 50 to 100 years. So certainly addressing those issues is going to be a big challenge, uh, not only here in Indiana, but nationwide and, and is likely going to result in, um, and some significant rate increases potentially notwithstanding any sort of federal assistance that comes along. Right. Um, last thing is just general inflation, and we haven't seen that a whole lot here recently. We've been in a relatively low inflation cycle, but um, indications are now that we may be seeing an uptick in that, so that's certainly something to keep an eye on. Sure. Hey, I, 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 just spring to my mind uh, with the mention of inflation, and you know, I've 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 heard uh, folks ask about um, kind of automatic increases based on some sort of index that that tracks utility costs or things like that. Have you have you seen that or heard of that or looked into it at all? Yeah, we have uh, here in Indiana a situation where um, the uh, regulatory commission has a procedure where if you go in for a rate increase, coming out of that, if you agree to do um, certain things, and that's a, a, a bucket of things that you can do for uh, effective management of your utility, if, you, if you're able to do those things, um, they will allow you to uh, have an increase, an automatic increase um, in subsequent years after your rate increase based on a, a factor that, that they actually, the, the regulatory commission prepares. And it's kind of a composite look at, at uh, two or three different inflation uh, factors. Um, so just based on that inflation factor, you can have an automatic increase for five years, and then you've got to come back in for a, another rate study. Um, so we see that in Indiana on the regulated side. Um, I've, I've seen, I know of one utility that's latched on to that idea and is doing that uh, even though they're uh, unregulated. So we'll see see how that uh, continues to play out. But it's not something that we're seeing a lot yet, but we, we may see more and more of it, time yeah. to tell. Yeah, yeah. And and just just for clarity's sake, I think the, the at least the Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission's, their index is available to, uh, for smaller utilities, it's not a, a generally available uh, program, is my understanding. Yeah, it's smaller utilities. Yeah. Yep. Um, the, the ones that can least afford the expense of a full full blown rate case. Um, and so it, it and it, and you know, there's all kinds of programs now that have that have come about that are kind of outside the scope of our our talk today about you know whether it's the the distribution system improvement charges that have been around now for quite a while. Uh, system integrity adjustments are starting to to come to the fore, and so th there's a lot of kind of like adders and kickers that that are outside the context of a general uh, increase in rates. Yeah, the the first system integrity adjust adjustment was just approved here a couple of weeks ago. So yeah, we'll we'll see. That that's certainly an area that uh, we're seeing a, a lot of interest in, you know, from the utility perspective because they want to cut down on the 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 time uh, to get through a, a regulated case and the cost. So uh, it's just a way to uh, accelerate that. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Scott, we have uh, we've already talked for over half an hour. It's uh, it's amazing how time has flown, uh, and I I kind of feel like we've we didn't get uh, as deep into some of the issues as I would have hoped, but maybe we'll, there's another opportunity down the road where we can, can look into that. But you've been absolutely fantastic. I really appreciate you uh, coming on and, and kind of filling us in on, on the anatomy of a municipal rate case. So uh, before, we, before we leave, uh, for those folks who want to find out more about you and Umball, where can they go to get that information? Yeah, Dave. Um, thanks again. I appreciate the opportunity to, to be here. Be happy to uh, do another one uh, with you in the future. Uh, our website is www.umbaugh.com. And uh, my email is miller at umbaugh.com. So you can uh, find out all about me on and our firm on that uh, website and uh, get into contact uh, with me through uh, email. Good deal. All right. Well, hey, thanks so much, Scott. Really appreciate your time. All right. Thank you. You bet. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Scott Miller of Umbaugh. I thought he was fantastic uh, and did a great job kind of explaining the categories of cost uh, that municipal water utilities are allowed to recover. I think, you know, he laid out pretty clearly. Um, And and again, this was a very high level. It wasn't intended to say that in whatever jurisdiction you're in, this is exactly how it's going to be done. Uh, You need to consult your own legal counsel. This was not you know, this interview was not intended to be taken as, as legal or accounting advice. Uh, so so consult, consult your, uh, your, your legal counsel or your rate advisor uh, if you are, uh, you know, looking at raising water rates or amending your water rates in any way, shape, or fashion. And, uh, uh, but this was really just intended uh, to give folks that maybe not don't live in this rate-setting uh, universe an idea of how municipal water rates are set. So with that, uh, again, greatly appreciated Scott's time and hope you enjoyed it. Uh, If you did enjoy it, please let me know what you thought about it by leaving some uh, comments on the show notes. You can find those at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod one, two, one. You can tweet at me using my handle, which is at DTM one nine nine three. You can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag water values. Um, would, would appreciate that. Any, uh, any insights, or you can email me at david at thewatervalues.com. Well, in closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. Information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.